0: Uh, We've got some more seats and uh, fill in around here and if we can, we'll bring in a few more. Senator, there's a lot better turnout. People showed up who didn't say they were coming, so we're going to get, we'll get people organized. uh, Well, how much did you charge? (laughs) 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 it? Welcome everybody. We're delighted you're all here. This is going to be a uh, a very interesting conversation with Senator Chuck Hagel. Uh, This is part of a series that we have been sponsoring at CSIS under the general rubric of the term smart power and of course the concept is that uh, America's got a lot of muscle and we've been using probably too much muscle in recent years and we ought to really be using all of the tools in our arsenal not just our muscles we ought to use our brains to think our way through a new relationship and a new way forward and uh, so we've had a series of uh, seminars like this I would like to let all of you know uh, colleagues here that uh, Senator Hagel was a member of this commission and one of the most influential and important members of the commission Uh, he was instrumental in helping us think through broad directions and Senator if I might and by the way I this book and if you if you don't have it it's really worth reading and uh, it is by the way available for sale here um, I'd like you to to pick it up because it's a it's a snapshot and a window on so many issues that America needs to get its arms around right now and so Senator let me let me first start in a very very big way with this question we're we've got a lot on our plate as a nation we've uh, we've got two difficult wars that are are playing out we've got a standoff with Iran that's very difficult we've got awkward relations with Russia. We've got frayed ties with our European allies. Uh, we've got unfinished business in North Korea. We've got a lot on our plate. Now, if if uh, if you were going to be sitting down with the, the next president uh, in the quiet moment before the inauguration, what would you say would be the broad direction? What does America need to do now at this point in history, given all of these problems that we're looking for? Uh, John, thank you. And I want to, before I answer the question, thank
1: you at CSIS for what you continue to, to do to help educate and inform our nation. Uh, I uh, think it is of uh, the highest calling and as important a priority at this time in the history of the world as any one priority. So thank you for what you continue to do in CSIS. And, Those here who are part of this organization. Um, I also want to thank you for giving me an opportunity to serve on the Smart Power Commission because I think that uh, document uh, represents a framework that's particularly important uh, at this time in uh, our framing a 21st century foreign policy that I'm not sure we have had and we are grasping for. Um, I was privileged to be part of that as you noted. I I, uh, was not near as influential as Dr. Hamry noted, but he's known for his exaggeration. So I uh, appreciate his thoughtfulness and uh, actually the truth is that Rich Armitage as many of you know are good friends of his as well as the general is and others uh, was one of the co-chairmen with Joe Nye and Armitage threatened to body slam me or bench press me if I uh, if it I uh, possible. didn't do it it, it is possible that's, that's right. I, I would be actually way too light for Armitage to bench press but uh, I think if uh, I was responding to a question by the next president of the United States, what do we do now, or what should I do first, or what would be the priorities? Uh, I um, would note first uh, bringing together, and I suspect both Senators McCain and Obama are thinking through this and have been and have very smart people working their way through this, not just a vice presidential candidate, which that's important as well, Uh, but um, people who they uh, would consider the smartest, wisest uh, Americans, not Republicans, not Democrats, but Americans uh, who uh, could help turn this country around and I think that is as high a priority to begin with as uh, there is for the next president, to quickly move to form a bipartisan, wise uh, cabinet and senior government management structure of the best people you can find in this country. Uh, The fact is that the next president is going to require a consensus of governance uh, if he is going to be anywhere near successful in engaging the great challenges that we have in front of us. The next president, I believe, is going to inherit uh, a inventory of challenges, of problems, as significant as any since FDR, and maybe worse, when you consider the depth and width of our challenges today. Not one of those issues, in my opinion, are insurmountable, not one of those we we, uh, are without the capability to address and successfully address. second point I would make to the President um, would be to reach out to the Congress and start setting it up right now. Uh, Both parties, uh, leadership, make the Congress a partner, a partner uh, for a purposeful governance, uh, a foreign policy of some purpose, of clear objective. There will be differences, there should be differences. There will be tensions, there should be tensions. But in the end, we must get beyond the tension and the differences and quit defining our status based on the differences. And we have to govern. And we have failed to govern in many areas uh, over the last eight years. And I think it's evident when you look at where we are today with energy, with our debt, uh, with immigration reform, entitlements. So many issues that have just been left there. And both parties are to blame. The President's to blame. The Congress is to blame for this. And we can't afford another four years of squandering this precious time at this time in the history of the world. Third point I would make to the President reach to our allies. It is critically important to start strengthening our alliances and building 21st century uh, alliances around the common interests uh, of our nations and of our peoples and you define those alliances not on our differences but on our common interests. There will be differences. There are differences. But they must be defined first based on common interests. We have many common interests with the Russians, with the Chinese. There are common interests with the Iranians. We saw that when we first went into Afghanistan when we cooperated with the Iranians. The Iranians cooperated with us, not because I don't believe that they wanted necessarily to help us or uh, they were enamored with Dick Cheney or George Bush, Uh, but it was clearly in their interest, clearly in their interest to share intelligence with us on that western border of Afghanistan. Poppy trade, drug trade, uh, radicalism, extremism, terrorists. Uh, They didn't want that. that. That wasn't
0: in their interest.
1: So you find common denominators of entries. but those would be the three areas, John. I think I would put forth to the, the next president. Senator. Let me
0: pick up, uh, especially on this last point. You say quite, quite directly in this book that that uh, we're not going to find peace in the Middle East unless we take Iran a new approach on Iran. Would you expand on that?
1: Well, I, I have said that, and I said it in the book, and I have said it. Uh, Times before it's not because I'm an expert on Iran or the Middle East. I'm an expert uh, on nothing. I'm, I'm a senator. So uh, <laughs> we, uh, what we don't know, we just make up, and then it uh, just works <laughs> works well that way. And uh, we just keep going till we're challenged. It's <laughs> not true, Senator. Then then you blame it on your staff. Uh, many of you know how that works. Um, The the fact is, uh, Iran represents uh, one of the power and political centers of gravity in the Middle East. Now, we uh, may not agree with the Iranian leadership. We may not like the Iranian leadership. Uh, Most of us are somewhat familiar with uh, what uh, the Iranians have been up to. Their support of uh, Hezbollah and Hamas, what they're doing in Iraq other places around the Middle East, Uh, but this is a very large strategically positioned country. This is a country that possesses tremendous natural resources, one of which is called oil, which is not insignificant in the world, if you've noticed lately, and uh, where they are positioned, the relationships they have with Russia, with China, with India, with other countries, uh, makes Iran a reality that we're going to have to deal with. Now, we can continue along uh, the path of sanctions, 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 and bludgeon them, threaten them, try to publicly humiliate them, and I don't know where that's getting us. Uh, There may be some in the audience who think we're in better shape in the Middle East than we were eight years ago. Uh, I don't think we are. I think the Middle East is far more dangerous, more combustible, more complicated, by any measurement, by any measurement. That tells me that uh, uh, to pursue the same strategy and policies we've been pursuing is folly, dangerous folly. Uh, the other piece of this uh, uh, is Israel. So wh- where we are headed because we have, we've walked ourselves into a strategic cul-de-sac, uh, we are clearly headed for one option, and that's war, the way we're going. Uh, And I have never understood uh, why some people believe that engagement equates appeasement, or that diplomacy is equal to appeasement. Uh, Engagement is critical. It is important. Great nations engage. Uh, This is about the comprehensive dynamic of the Middle East it is about our interest in the Middle East it's about Israel's interest in the Middle East it's about everyone's interest in the world and I have called for uh, direct unconditional comprehensive uh, talks with Iran now l- let's stop the political nonsense here for a moment and and jump into a 30-second TV commercial and say candidate X wants to sit down with uh, crazy old president Ahmadinejad Well, I've never heard any candidate for president, nor any senator or congressman, say that. Uh, We may not get to a a negotiation with Iran if we engage them. I don't know that. But uh, when I read a a wire story this morning about the Israelis now believe, or at least enough in the cabinet, that there's only one option. Sanctions haven't worked, so war is the only thing left. We're going to have to bomb them. Oh, no, wait a minute. There is something left called engagement. It's called engagement. It may not work, but but I I, uh, look at North Korea. If you recall, North Korea was one of the famous axis of evil countries. And I remember the President's uh, framing of Kim Jong-il in not particularly complimentary terms. But my goodness, guess what we're doing? We're talking to North Korea. We're actually sitting down with North Korea we have built a six-party talk process based on the common interests of four other nations in that region, brought them into it, all have played a role particularly the Chinese. Uh, we're not where we need to be yet long-term objective but we have a clear objective we set our azimuth to the old infantryman like George knows that term shoot your azimuth and we are focusing on that azimuth. Now, Are the Koreans cheating? Maybe. Are they lying? Maybe. Uh, But we are actually making progress. We're getting deeper down into where we want to go. Now, is that alternative perfect? No. Is it flawed? Yes. But is it a better alternative than going to war and starting another war? Uh, And so I have believed all along that uh, a wiser course, John, would be to engage the Iranians. That uh, uh, When we do that, uh, gives us some latitude and I think new credibility with the with the Arab world uh, it, it it maneuvers Syria a little bit here uh, it takes some pressure off Syria I don't believe the Syria wants to be in the Iranian orbit uh, but it's a comprehensive regional strategy that we've not had that we now must have that includes the Syrians obviously the Israelis what's going on in Iraq t- today and I think where we have gotten off course is that we've tried to compartmentalize these issues. You're not going to compartmentalize Iraq. I mean the folly is somehow we're going to ride into Iraq on a white horse and make a democracy out of it that's going to be the the centerpiece and the model for all other democracies that will follow suit. Well that's uh, in blatant disregard of history And, and I hope Iraq develops into a flourishing democracy, and it may, and it may, but it doesn't come because we will impose it or we think it's the best thing or that's our way to do it. Uh, it has to come because the Iraqis and others find it in their interest. It makes a better life for the people. There, there, there's all these different variations of a regional strategy that we have not put in place. Is that tougher? Sure, but you can't compartmentalize the situation in Lebanon or, or Israel or Iran or Iraq or Syria, they are woven into one Middle East fabric. And engagement is part of that. The military option is always an option. It is one of the many instruments of power that a great nation has. I've never believed, maybe it's because uh, I was in a war once, that you should lead with your military option, Uh, unless obviously someone attacks you, unless there's a a, a situation. But, But not when you've got other options. You use, great powers use all their instruments of power, this being one of them.
0: Senator, I, I, I'm going to turn to the audience in a few minutes, but I do want to give them a bit of a flavor of the, of the scope of the book, and so I'd like to shift and ask a question. You spend some time in the book talking about America's financial foundations, and we're, we're right on the edge now of a pretty tough uh, economic period. It's pretty hard to imagine how you'd be a superpower if you've got economic feet of clay. I wonder if you would, what does this look like from your standpoint, a senator that's tried to engage on these economic issues?
1: Well, I think uh, most people agree. Uh, I've always believed that uh, the centerpiece uh, of power uh, is uh, is based on on economic freedom and economic strength. And from that economic strength and freedom then flows all other options of power. If a nation is without economic options based on economic strength, then there isn't much there. There's not much there. You're not going to build any ships and you're not going to have much to defend your borders and all that goes with that unless you have the economic power to build it, and I think we are and have been blatantly disregarding, dangerously disregarding uh, the core of our economic strength in this country, and and I address that in a couple of chapters. One being focusing on our competitive role in the world. Uh, we are living at a time when we are witnessing the greatest diffusion of power the world's ever seen economic power, but with economic power comes geopolitical influence. Uh, Variations and variances and redefinitions of alliances and interests. Over the last few months, where did our our major financial institutions in this country go to recapitalize? They went to the Persian Gulf in Asia. That should tell us enough. Uh, Who holds, I talk about this in, in the book, about who holds our debt? over half of our national debt which by the way we run up a third of that in the last seven years uh, is held by uh, Asian governments and Asian investors and we need two to three billion dollars a day flowing into this country from these countries these investors to purchase our Treasury bonds and our notes just to make the interest on our national debt the interest we paid out last year in our national debt was more than we spent on Medicaid. to give you some frame of reference here. You know what is happening to our budget, our $3 trillion budget this year. Now we're getting close to 65, 70 percent of that's already obligated. About 70 percent is already off the table. Medicare, Social Security, Medicaid, veterans, pensions, benefits, interest on the national debt. Gone. And each year we're squeezing uh, our our budget and we are squeezing the portion of our budget uh, that we can control, the Congress and the President. Mm-hmm. And uh, as that gets squeezed out, that uh, contracts our options, our foreign policy options, all of our options, because we are so obligated already to national debt and to Social Security, Medicare, which we've not done anything about, and that's another chapter in the book which we're gonna have to do uh, deal with. So. What I, I say is, and infrastructure is another part of this, we're putting nothing into infrastructure. Morgan Stanley, for example, noted about a month ago that uh, in the next 10 years, the developing economies of the world are, have already committed over $22 trillion in new infrastructure projects, India, Indonesia, China, Brazil. Um, and our total budget, federal budget this year is $3 trillion and so as as we compress this budget we're going to have fewer and fewer options now we can continue to finance things like we financed the iraq war it's the only war that's ever been financed through emergency supplementals we don't there was a reason for that obviously don't bring it before the congress don't bring it before the authorization committees don't bring it before the appropriations committees because then you would have to be accountable you would have to actually defend what we're doing so what the White House has done, they, uh, they have uh, funded this war through emergency supplementals. And if you don't vote for it, by the way, then you're disloyal and you won't support the troops. And so it puts people who actually might want to question some components of our strategy, it puts them in a, in a somewhat difficult position that you're disloyal and you can't defend the troops, you won't defend the troops, and how dare you uh, hold up money for our troops. Now that's not the way to make policy, that's not who America is, that's, that's dishonest. And so this is all wrapped into the economic piece that John has asked me about. And I talk about it in a book. I don't just inventory the problems. Every problem that I inventory and I talk about, I talk about a solution. There's a way out of this. There is a way out of this. Part of the way out for us is that we've got to break this this nutty protectionist trade mentality that both parties have succumbed to. My party, uh, not as much as the Democrats. Uh, this idea of somehow we're going to unwind trade agreements and uh, sometime, somehow we're going to go back and recapture jobs that were lost 15, 20 years ago. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. There, there is a, a very old simple law. I don't think it's in any law books, but it's a law. It's called the law of comparative advantage. And mankind has used that law since some fool invented the stone wheel. Because think what that fool did people he put out of work, we invented that wheel. Because you, what would you do? You're supposed to put the sticks and stones on your back and walk up the hill and build a hut. Now you have a wheel to help you with that. My God, do you know what you've done? Uh, and, and so somehow we, the greatest, most innovative country probably in the history of man, uh, has somehow uh, lost our nerve and fallen back on a complete gray zone of government protection, government regulation. And uh, so the protectionist streak we see, the pandering to certain states and areas, we're gonna, you, you elect me, I'll get your jobs back on the assembly line. Oh, I don't think so. Why aren't we smart enough to take the value added dynamic of who we are and we build better jobs New jobs, better skills, better education, citizenship for our young people—that's uh, that, the 21st century. That's how we're going to compete. And you know, you can take any measurement of us losing ground, whether it's international IPOs or how much money that was raised in capital on the Hong Kong, London, New York stock exchanges, and, and we're falling further and further behind. Now we're not going to be uh, overtaken by the Huns anytime soon. The, Uh, We are the largest economy in the world, no one's even close. We are the most flexible economy in the world. I wouldn't trade our balance sheet for anybody else's. But every day that ticks by, that we're not paying attention. Energy is a perfect example. We become more and more reliant on others for our energy, for uh, the financing of our national debt, and for all the other components that are the core uh, of a great economy. Infrastructure is a good example. Last Thursday the Banking Committee, which I've served on for 12 years, held a hearing on the Dodd-Hagel bill. and It's a bill that we came up with along with John CSIS uh, organization which was very instrumental in helping us structure this, Warren Rudman, uh, Felix Roetton, and uh, others. and Dodd and I introduced it about a year ago and what it is, it's not complicated, it's not profound, but it's harnessing private sector funding, investments to use to build infrastructure in this country. We're the only government in in the world that has no capital budget, and we're falling further and further behind as we uh, have already noted. So why aren't we wise enough to find private public partnerships to take private investment to invest in infrastructure in this country rather than we know we're not going to have the tax revenues to do it. So we had this hearing we had five mayors. The mayors are on the front line as we all know. They can't defer the tough choices. They can't hide in Washington. They can't <laughs> run up deficits. They can't invent things. They can't defer choices. And so the mayors are right there every day. Bloomberg from New York let it off. He talked about it. But we had the whole panoply of different mayors, Atlanta and so on. Last mayor testified was from Kansas City, my part of the country. And he said something that kind of cuts right the judge's point in question and what I have written about in the book on this particular area. He said, and uh, that these were his words, and some of you may have seen this in a wire story, that, that we, the United States, the most prosperous nation on earth, are witnessing the quiet collapse of prosperity. That's an astounding thing to say. Uh, now, this was not a fool. This was not a guy who was somehow disjointed or disconnected from reality. Uh, he's a, he's an, an accountant by trade, by the way. And he started to defi- define why that is, and obviously focused on infrastructure. But the larger scope of this, to finally bring this rambling answer to an end, is, is the essence of any nation's power is its economy, its economic power. After its nation of laws, we are a nation of laws. After that, after that, And and we are seeing, just as that Kansas City mayor noted, a quiet erosion of that. And we've got to turn that around. We can do that by engaging, by trade, by prioritizing, by being wiser uh, in our spending, all the things that we're going to have to do to to change this. Last point I'd make, there there isn't an issue that we're dealing with out there on this economic scene, whether it's energy, housing, mortgage, finance, that we haven't brought on ourselves. Chinese aren't to blame. We love to blame the Chinese, of course. Uh, the consumer, of course, has been the greatest beneficiary of all this. Uh, but every one of these issues is is made here in the United States. We over-leveraged, we over-mortgaged, we over-borrowed, we abused credit, and we just kept going. So what do we think is going to happen? Uh, I talk about the confluence of of reality. We are now at that confluence. Everything in life always produces a confluence. Our personal lives deal with confluence. The ultimate confluence is, is when they put you in the ground. That's, that's the end. The river empties out of the ocean, and goodbye, Chuck. I mean, it's good night. You had a good run. That's the ultimate confluence. But there's a confluence to everything in life and every event, every time, every company, every organization. And we are at a world confluence today, especially in this country, on all these things. And that was the reason, actually, I wrote the book.
0: Sir, so, uh, colleagues, this will be the last question I ask, and then I'm going to turn to you. But, uh, And let me just say, as an editorial remark, I, God, I hate the thought you're leaving Congress. I mean, that's, <laughs> it's what I've always appreciated when you speak is that you, you, you aren't trying to get that 10 second soundbite in that zinger, you know, that people love. You're, you're laying out thoughtful. Uh, exposition. I really am going to miss that. Uh, but let me ask, where, where did our politics get so off track? I mean, how, there was once a time when, you know, this was the norm, when we had reasoned debates. And now we, it's sadly, it's brickbats. It's not really a dialogue between the parties. It's its mm-hmm. rhetorical abuse. What? How did this happen? What can we do about it?
1: Well, I, as you know, I have a chapter on this as well in the
0: book. <laughs> I thought so. Uh, I, I, it's not. I don't know, dummy. Here, I don't uh,
1: I don't write on everything, but I, uh, I. I say a lot, but actually very little on anything. But the, um, I don't know all the answer to the question, but I do have some uh, thoughts that, that I have I put forth in the book on this. Uh, we live. Um, at a time, obviously, of historical immediacy. I mean, everything is, is immediate. It is now, uh, whether it's fast food or, or whatever. And with that comes an expectation now. I have a daughter who is going to be a junior in high school, a son, a sophomore in high school. And of course, I see it from that lens, from that perspective as a father, as many of you fathers and mothers out there, grandfathers, grandmothers. And so you see it too. Um, and the, the last, I don't know when it started, uh, we're all to blame on this, by the way, both parties, all leaders, the media. Uh, the media drive a lot of this because there's, there's a great need out there for confrontation. Mm-hmm. I call it the, the modern-day bread and circus. Uh, that's what the Romans did. You know. I mean, just feed the Christians to them and keep them happy with bread and have circuses. It just, just, just have circuses keep them happy, and then contract out your national security. Until the Visigoths got smart enough to say, "Jesus, these these guys are fat, and hell, we could, we could be uh, in those palaces, take those them. big villas," and that's what they did. Uh, and and we're kind of on the edge of that now. And somehow we have, um, somehow we have developed a, an entirely different standard. Uh, in politics today based on the success uh, of the election and that has produced an immense industry of professionals and I'm not against consultants and I'm not against pollsters and professionals of any industry but it has built up this immense industry of the so-called professionals now the professionals are in many cases hired gunslingers In many ways, they're assassins. Because elections today are not good enough just to have legitimate debates about what you would do as president or senator or governor or engage the other uh, uh, person or the opponent or challenge. It's not about uh, education. It's not about information. It's not about uh, uh, impressing or uh, or trying to excite involvement or making a better world uh, or, or inspiring people. Uh, when I think of inspiring people, I think of, uh, of course, Kennedy comes to mind, and, and, and we've had some, some politicians since Kennedy who would focus on it. Not not that Kennedy was uh, uh, any Boy Scout. I recognize that. But, but the rhetoric was different, too. Politics has always been tough. I mean, just go back and look at some of the old Harper weeklies from the, from the 1860s when they, when they had pictures of Lincoln uh, as an ape. And, I mean, it goes on and on and on. So it's always been a tough sport. It's been contact, But we have so degraded the system today based on the outcome of not just winning but destroying. And everything has been based on, over the years, both parties, on tactical political wins, not on strategic uh, wins, and that's how we govern today, by the way, or think we're governing, um, is is give me the tactical political victory. Um, Iraq, the surge, regardless of what you think, one way or the other, uh, that, that was tactically successful, in my opinion. But, but there's a lot more to it than that. Because with the, the surge uh, uh, comes all the rest of it. I'm not sure the families of those soldiers uh, who were killed, over a 1,000 of them during that surge, think it was tactical success, or the thousands wounded. Uh, but the bigger point is, what did it produce? Did it produce a political realignment, uh, or a resolution, or accommodation? Uh, not yet. I mean, we're doing better. But I use that as, as a bit of an example. But the politics now has become consumed, with, consumed uh, with the pros who, uh, who do all that they can to tell the candidate, no, don't, don't take the high road on this because no one's interested in that because the media won't cover that. The media loves the confrontation. I mean, look at all the shows out there, left, right, the whole thing. And it's all about destroying the other person. It's all about tearing the other person down. And that doesn't mean any politician should be immune from tough questioning. Or uh, transparent in their lifestyles or anything else. I don't mean that, uh, but there's a mean spirit uh, to this that is a very dangerous thing because what it's doing, John, it's debasing the political process. For our young people out there to the witness this, they see it as just dirty. They see it as uh, not an inspirational profession. They and then too many get in it for the wrong reasons. You should get into politics, you young people out there, for one reason. One reason, and that's to make a better world. If you are not driven by that one thing, make a better world, you should stay the hell out of it. And uh, that should be the objective of all of us in everything we do in our lives. You don't need to make a better world only through politics, or only can a better world be made through politics. As a matter of fact, most of the world is far better off, shaped, molded, and, and developed uh, uh, in more superior ways than any other outside of government teachers, parents, Boy Scout, Girl Scout, uh, mentors. I mean, that's, that's where you shape societies. That, that's where you change the world. You don't do it in government. Government doesn't change the world. Government can get in the way can do great damage. But I think it's all those things, John, that it, and it is as, as big a concern for me as a father of two uh, young high school kids and someone who spent a little time in this profession, which I think should be an honorable profession. I think any public service, whether you're the military, or, or any public service, that's honorable, that's important. You're, you're being part of something and you're contributing to something far greater than your own interests, bigger than yourself. And by the way, I don't detect this generation, I don't say this just because of my kids. I speak to colleges, high schools, grade schools all over the country all the time. I don't think there's a higher obligation that any of us have as elected officials than to connect with young people and to stay in touch with young people and let them work you over. Sit down with them and just let them beat you up for an hour on questions and so on and, and, and you said this but you voted this way. How why is that, Senator? Let them, let them have at you. These kids today are as good as any group of kids we've ever had. Uh, there's nothing wrong with these kids. We're failing the kids when we don't give them avenues to contribute and I talk about that in the book about citizenship. I have a chapter on that. And we ought to be looking at ways for these young people to serve you know, we're not going to go back to a draft like what George dealt with and what I dealt with and many in this room. I mean, that would be crazy and for a lot of reasons. But there are certainly so many things that young people could be doing for this country and would love to do. It would develop their own self-confidence. It would de- develop an interest in their country, an investment in their country, a pride in their service. But what do we do? We've I mean, we got a couple, a couple things out there, but, but, but not much, but not much. I think there'll be a reorientation to that, I, I really do. I see these young people wanting more, and it's all looped into politics, it, it, it is. And politics should be noble, it should be about enhancing the world, it should be about informing the world, and it should be a, about a debate. And you know, I'm going to give a speech on this probably in a week or two on, the, on this on the subject, not that anybody's interested, but I, uh, I, I, I do feel pretty strongly about it.
0: I'm encouraged to hear you say it because it tells me that even if you're going to leave office you're not going to leave leadership and that's great for all of us colleagues let me open up here and see if there are questions uh, right down here please right down in the front and we'll come back uh, good
1: afternoon Senator Stephen Klaue, former CSIS
0: Uh, going back to the first question how you advise the uh, next incoming president about Pakistan Mm -hmm. how it's become the uh, wild card issue these days of the region, not just in Afghanistan and Iraq? Uh,
1: well, incidentally, I, I just met with the new Pakistani ambassador this morning, and we spent an hour uh, talking about uh, these big issues that you have uh, noted. Uh, I think the most dangerous region in the world today is that Punjab strip uh, along the uh, Afghan-Pakistan border, and Essentially, in the federally administered tribal areas of Pakistan. Uh, quantifiably, it is the most dangerous area in the world. And we're seeing some of the uh, unfortunate consequences of that played out in Afghanistan over the last few days. Um, Pakistan is a critical ally of America. And we. Uh, I believe, and I was in Pakistan during the election, Senator Biden and Senator Kerry and I were there monitoring the elections, and there for two days, in Afghanistan two days, India two days. And by the way, it's the first time we have seen a peaceful transition of power in Pakistan Hmm. since that country was was formed in 1947. Um, Now, imperfect, do they have problems? Yes, Uh, but that's reality, that's reality. Uh, our interests very much coincide and intersect uh, in and around and with Pakistan. Uh, The new government in Pakistan, I think, gives us some hope that if they can consolidate enough of their own interests, the larger interests of the country and the 160 million people uh, that live there, um, and bring some accommodation to governance there, uh, then, then I think we've got some uh, s- some real possibilities. That isn't going to happen tomorrow. Uh, these issues are deep, and, and they're wide, and they're very divisive. And uh, we can't expect that Pakistan or any nation, sovereign nation, is going to do America's bidding on our whim, on our time frame, when we want it. And if we don't like it, then we'll go to the press and say Musharraf's a thug, or he's not doing enough, or 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 criticize the new government publicly. I don't think you ever do much enhance or influence uh, the direction of a government or anybody uh, when you publicly humiliate them and degrade them. Uh, There are times when when some of that is necessary, but you influence the Chinese, you influence the Russians or anyone else by working quietly on the inside using self-interest sometimes outside influences is, is part of that but that's all part of the structure of the instruments of power and Pakistan needs to get right we have to make sure this new government our government and where we're going together here because we are we are together it is a nuclear power uh, and you think of the nuclear powers in that region of the world that is a very dangerous yeah. situation there and the, the, we can't have any cowboy talk and uh, rough talk and all the rest wise careful, deliberate, thoughtful leadership relationships and, and to build those. this is difficult. this is difficult for Pakistan uh, and we've got to factor that, uh, that in. I would I would say this and I mentioned this in the book, whether it's Pakistan, whether it's any of our uh, relationships around the country, around the world or, or within any of our alliances that we're a part of we must now reverse the optics in the world. This world is now so much beyond where we were 25 years ago that no longer is it adequate for America to adjust and calibrate and frame uh, and build and implement policy based on our optic alone. We've got to reverse those optics and get a sense of how, how the Pakistanis see us too or how the Muslim world sees us or any other country that doesn't take anything away from our sovereignty, our manhood, Uh, that's just smart. Uh, That is smart, and you build bridges with people, and the human condition ultimately is always going to determine the outcome of everything. And when you've got a third of the world living in poverty, and a good deal of that in abject poverty, much of the smart power report that many of you were part of or read, until we devote some time and energy and resources and alliances to getting underneath this, the human condition, uh, then, then it won't make any difference how many Marines we put anywhere or how many ships we put anywhere. We will have lost the world at a time when the world does not know who we are. And that's the first part of my book, Reintroducing America to the World.
0: Right in the back of the wall uh, with a red tie.
1: Hi, uh, Senator Hagel. I'm Greg Hudson, an intern here at CSIS. And you mentioned a lot about finding a bipartisan solution uh, to America's problems and reaching out beyond the party lines. Who do you think in Congress has been the most uh, helpful and
0: instrumental in that job? In addition to Senator Hagel. (laughs) In addition to you. Well, I I think, um, in my observation
1: my 12 years in the Senate, uh, there are a number of members. I don't know the House as well. I know uh, the House, but, but not as well as the Senate because I work obviously every day with my 99 colleagues. Um, I think the, the, the better question there is, is um, or at least a focus on answering your question, is finding opportunities and setting the framework and the stage and developing the atmospherics and the environment to work together. When you do that then then there's a naturalness to that, because why? Because then there is a common purpose, there's a common objective. Now there'll be differences, I I understand that, there should be differences, but for example if you look at most of the committees in the Senate, the ranking Republican now and the Democratic Chairman, most of those, those committees I can't really think of one that doesn't work. Where the relationships between the Republican and the Democrat who run those those committees uh, don't get along. That's the way the Senate works. That's the way we have to do it to get along. We may not want to drive across country with somebody or go on the picnic with them, but uh, you got to work with them. That's reality. That's professionalism. That's maturity. Rather than some political analyst over here Uh, or some political pro saying kick the hell out of them all the time or just keep leading them into these little traps, make them take tough votes. Most of the luncheons that I've attended in the 12 years I've been in the Senate, Tuesdays are the Democrat-Republican luncheons, which most of you know, where we get together for an hour and a half, talk about strategies, bills, what we're going to do, Democrats, Republicans, along. Most of those luncheons that I've attended in 12 years have all been about how are we going to screw the Democrats? Uh, How are we going to make sure they take a tough vote? And Democrats do the same thing to us. Well, how does that enhance America? How does that fix Social Security? How does that change anything? How does that uh, uh, focus on developing a a keener foreign policy or questioning what the president's doing over here uh, without anybody even paying attention? And so the atmospherics, the environment has to be built in order to bring these politicians together to work together. But it can be done. It's done in all these committees with the, with, with the, with the chairman and the ranking member. Now being, for example, I serve on four committees, I give you two of them that are one in particular is uh, one relations. Biden and Luger. These guys are pros. They're smart. They care about their country. They both still have their souls, which uh, I can't say about everybody in this town. And, uh, uh, and they care about things. They care about their country. They, they care about our country more than they do their own political futures and their own parties. And they're not unique in that. Uh, uh, other and, and that's why it's a joy to work on that committee. Now, you could say, yeah, but that's foreign relations and so on. Well, take banking. I've been on banking for 12 years. Uh, Dodd and Shelby, about as two opposites as you'll get, make things work uh, in in that committee. Uh, And so you go right down the line, Levin and Warner on armed services. Now, again, you can say, well, but that's armed services, that's really not a partisan thing. How about Mike Enzi and Ted Kennedy? Uh, Health, education, labor, and pension. Boy, that's a committee that separates the Democrats from Republicans pretty quickly. Uh, Budget. Conrad and, and Judd Gregg. Uh So we can do this, but we need leadership at the top to do it. And the President of the United States sets the political tone in America.
0: Right, right down here in the front. Yeah. Um.
1: Thank you, Senator. My name is Tim Dock, and I'm with IBM. And I wonder if you wouldn't return
0: to your uh, uh, comments on trade Currently, it seems like there's two discourses. Trade is the future of our economy. Trade is the source of all of our problems that we have in our economy right now. How do we move the trade agenda forward, and and what
1: would that new discourse be? Well, I hope trade gets a a thorough airing in the presidential campaign here over the next four months. Unfortunately, we've been uh, consumed with the underbrush of nonsense. uh, And... um, I hope that's just a a uh, uh, a part of primaries. You know, primaries are silly because you've got you've got to cut your wrists and say I'm as conservative and nutty as you need me to be to get it over on the right, to the Republicans, and then you do it with the left and the Democrats. And so you somehow it's un-American to actually think about the country and governing. Uh, and but the general election, then that's where the general election road is it becomes clearer where the two candidates start focusing on a higher plane, and I hope trade will be part of it. Uh, I think we've so debased the, the debate on, on trade and so uh, uh, moved beyond the essence and, and the vitality and the legitimacy of, of trade. Well, what is trade? Well, trade is not a guarantee. Uh, trade is an opportunity. Trade is an opening. Trade opens bridges and opens opportunities. And uh, it is far more than just a, an exchange of merchandise or services or commercialization. It is people's getting acquainted. It's understanding common interests. The more people trade, the more they benefit, the more the standards of living in countries increase. Uh, that's good. We, we should welcome all that for every country in the world. We shouldn't be intimidated by it. We shouldn't be afraid of it. We should embrace that. Why is that? Well, for two obviously selfish reasons for America. The more that happens, the more stability and security in the world. I think that's good. It should mean there less Marines and less paratroopers and less ships and all the things that George has devoted his life to and others in this room in the military. I think that's good. Second, more markets for America. Higher standard of living means more income, better income, more American products, and so on. How is that bad? I don't think it's bad. So so we've missed and deflected from the core of the of the debate, it seems to me. So what we do is when we talk about trade, we get off into never-never land on about three issues. And the Democrats and, and labor will take always this over here. Uh, well. What about environmental restrictions? What about labor restrictions? Those are important, absolutely. If, if, if we have to hold our workers to a standard, then is it not fair to hold other countries and laborers to some standard so that, they, so that our laborers and our companies and our people don't have to compete with these guys over here that have no standards so therefore they can sell their products cheaper? I get that, that's important, that's part of it. But when you consume the whole debate on that issue, We miss the point, the core, uh, of trade. The second part that has gone wrong on the trade and debate is not only that, but somehow we blame trade for uh, losing jobs and all the economic problems that that we have. And if 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 we weren't exporting our jobs, and if we weren't going to Mexico and China and so on, then America would be fat and happy and sassy and everybody would have good work and good jobs. Uh, Well, that's economic nonsense anyway, and you economists in the room know that. You all know the numbers on every time an American plant is built uh, anywhere. Uh, That means American standards go into that. That means the supplies and services that go into that are significant uh, and sometimes better than building a plant in this country. Uh, That means the more American footprint is in that area, whether it's Shanghai or wherever it is, that's good. This is a global economy that we now exist in. That is not going to unwind. The Congress can screw it all up in any way they want, or a president can. That isn't going to change anything about trade. The Chinese and the Indians and the Brazilians and the Europeans, everybody else is going to continue to trade. Everybody else is going to continue to trade. We're we're not going to dominate that debate. And it's exactly what the Kansas City mayor was talking about. The quiet collapse of prosperity, and we're doing it to ourselves. One of the points I make in my book, I quote a a great historian by the name of Arnold Toynbee, who many of you are familiar with and read his works. Toynbee, in his great book on civilizations, as to what happened to 24 civilizations, he says, and I think it's particularly appropriate right now, and I think it it reflects on your point on trade. Civilizations die from suicide. They, They don't die from murder. What's his point? His point is exactly what the Kansas City mayor said. We're doing it to ourselves. And uh, we're going to have to open this trade debate and trade back up. Now, uh, fair trade, is that important? Of course it is. Do we have issues with the Chinese? Do we have issues with other people? We have issues with our closest allies in Europe on trade issues. But that's why we have a trade regime. That's why we have a regulatory process. That's why these great, great, great leaders that we had after World War II, Eisenhower, Marshall, uh, Truman, all of them, why they had the vision, just as the vision of our founding fathers, to build these coalitions of common interests, to bring some structure and some discipline and pattern to the world. So what did they do? We presided over building NATO, United Nations, General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which is now WTO, IMF, World Bank, dozens of multilateral banks. What was the point behind this? It was the common interest that all mankind should prosper. We had, we had interest. It, it defined some boundaries, which we would not had before in the first 50 years of the 20th century. And Eisenhower and all of them, and you, you know all the books and the histories of this, they were consumed with the fear of not allowing the United States and the world to slip into another World War III and a nuclear exchange because they knew this time around as bloody as World War II was in World War I, what was coming next was going to be worse. So all this fits into the trade thing. We've lost our perspective on this because partly we're ignorant. We don't understand these things. We don't teach civics in our schools. We don't teach history in our schools. Members of Congress are very limited Many of them in their scope of understanding these things. I don't think we all have to be economists or historians, but uh, history history can't keep you off the rocks. It can't define a new policy, but it's not a bad it's not a bad uh, compass
0: either. Colleagues, I apologize. I've got at least a dozen questions, and the all-powerful personal staff is giving me the high sign. So I'm going to have to cut this off here at this stage. I mean, there's a wonderful little vignette in the end of the book where. Senator Hagel uh, imagines if he were going to be able to pick people to put on Mount Rushmore, who would he pick, you know? And he basically calls on everybody, all of us, to do that. Who is, uh, who is emblematic of what you want America to be? He picked three very interesting people, Dwight Eisenhower, uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, and his mom. And so I think we're <laughs> a very good son. But let me just say, if anybody deserves to be on it, it's his mom because she raised one hell of a good son. So thank you very much for Thank you. Thank you. Thank
1: you. John, thank you very
0: much.